Well, as Ron said earlier, we've come together tonight to behold. We've come together to remember. To remember our neediness and to remember the great provision that God has given to us in Christ. We've, we know these things. We haven't forgotten them, but we need to refresh our memory. We need to rehearse these things to ourselves and with each other about who we are, about who God is, about what he's done, and why it matters both now and for eternity. We need to keep rehearsing to ourselves and with each other. This is what our songs do. This is what our prayers and scripture readings do. To rehearse to ourselves what the gospel is and the difference the gospel makes for now and eternity. To remind ourselves where our hope lies and what hope lies ahead for us if we're his. In some ways, God calls us Christians to routinely do some very simple things. To get together, to read the Bible, to talk about it, to pray to him, and to sing songs of praise to him. To keep recounting, rehearsing, remembering what he said, what he's done, and what it means for us. And yet, what we recount to ourselves and what we rehearse together is not simple at all. It is utterly profound. And that's needed in this icky, mucky world that we live in. I wonder, have you found this world today to be frustrating, scary, sad, icky, and sick? If not today, maybe other, other days this week or... Or maybe last week, one of my colleagues here at the church said just yesterday, put me on ice and wake me up in a year. That's one of your pastors here. It was Trent, I'll tell on him. <laughs> uh, I agree. Have you today, this week, or ever in your life felt utterly inadequate for what you're supposed to be doing. Donald Trump says that his only weakness is uh, a problem with forgiving others. <laughs> My only weakness is everything. <laughs> everything. My strengths are backwards weaknesses. I feel weak in my prayers. Weak in my ministry, weak in my parenting, weak in my obedience, my weak against sin. How weak and needy is the human condition? How desperate is our situation? Well, let me answer that with a few verses in Romans to get us started. A few verses in Romans remind me how needy the human condition is, how desperate our situation is. Chapter 3, verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and become worthless. In chapter 7, verse 15, Paul speaks personally. He says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I do not do the good that I want, but I do the evil 
instead. Wretched man that I am, he said, who will deliver me from this body of death? In chapter 8 of Romans, verse 20, we're told that this creation was subjected to futility. The whole creation right now is groaning and waiting. Now, if you've ever read Romans before, you might be thinking right here, but Ryan, you're reading the, the darkest parts of Romans, the desperate parts of Romans, and there's great hope in Romans. And indeed, there is. You're right. In fact, human weakness and unshakable hope are smushed together and intermingled all throughout this grand book we call Romans. It's like an eclipse of the sun where darkness and piercing brightness meet together at once. And in Romans, we find this contrast of darkness and bright hope not just about our former hopelessness as sinners and our present hope as Christians, but the contrast continues. Human weakness and unshakable hope are still the eclipse of this life, the Christian life. We know that from experience. We should. And no surprise that that's in the book of Romans as well. The best, most faithful Christians in this world still feel inadequate, desperate, weak, frail, bewildered, and frustrated. And faithful Christians also fight their darndest to rehearse the splendor and surety of the gospel of Christ with all of its breathtaking, world-altering promises. So let's open our Bibles tonight and turn to Romans 8. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans 8, where once again we'll see the severity of of our weakness, the threats of this world and all of its darkness, Contrasted with the brilliant glory of unshakable hope because of the gospel. We'll look at verse 26 in following of Romans 8 tonight. In a couple of Sundays from now, a friend of mine, Justin Taylor, will be with us. And he will preach the verses before verse 26 to us on a Sunday morning. I don't think it'll give away anything tonight for us to look at verses 26 and following, and hopefully the two will complement each other and we'll, we'll better understand each of these sections over the next, what, 10 days or so. Chapter 8, verse 26, let's read to the end of the chapter. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, here in this treasure trove of God's word, I think Paul gives us five main pillars of hope. Pillars of hope for weak Christians like you and me, threatened Christians, suffering Christians, even doubting Christians. Five main pillars of hope. Here's the first. There's hope for weak prayers. Hope for weak prayers. How weak and needy are we still as redeemed Christians? Well, we often don't know what to pray, according to the Bible. I hope you already know that from experience. And I hope you see here you need reminding of it. You don't know what to pray for as you ought. Sometimes we think we know what to pray, and we don't. Sometimes we feel self-sufficient, so self-sufficient we don't think to pray. Sometimes life is hard, and we can't help but pray. And sometimes life is so hard that we want to pray, and we don't know what to say. We don't know what God should do for us. You know why that's a good thing? Well, for one, it's because it reminds you afresh that you're not God. You don't know what you should pray for. Should you pray to get that job you interviewed for? Well, you can. But do you really eternally know whether it will be for your utter spiritual good? Whether it will be best for God's glory? You don't always know. More money sure isn't the answer for that. Should you pray for that pain or that ailment to be relieved? You sure can. But you don't know always whether pain-free will mean serving God better and loving him more, do you? I don't know what to pray 
for Christians in America these days. On the one hand, I know that religious freedom is good, and the Apostle Paul prayed for open doors for the gospel. So I want freedom. On the other hand, I know from the Bible that persecution causes Christians to pray more. It causes them to be more bold. It often unites them and purifies them, and it often makes them long for heaven more than they ever did. I don't know what to pray. The Apostle Paul struggled with which was better, to serve the church for years to come or to go and be with the Lord. He struggled with it. Philippians 1, read it. Before that, toward the end of his life, earlier, he, he struggled with where to go next with the gospel. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul at times, did not know what to pray. That's why he puts it like this. We do not know what to pray. That's good. Even the Apostle Paul isn't God and doesn't always know. It's good because we're not without help. Verse 26 says that the Spirit helps us in this weakness. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, it's not clear to me whether that groaning too deep for words is the literal groaning of Christians who don't know what to pray and, they, and all they can do is groan, or whether the Spirit of God prays for us so specifically and so passionately that the Spirit groans for us when we don't know what to say. I don't know which of those it is. I don't think it matters, really. I think Christians who don't know what to pray often do groan. I can imagine the Spirit does pray for us in ways we can't imagine. I'm sure he's got some groanings that we don't even know about. He's got words to use that we can't imagine. But the point is that he prays for us, filling in what we don't say and what we don't know to pray. Verse 27 explains it to us. The Spirit, of course, is God. And so he knows the will of God. He knows the mind of God. And so he knows what to pray according to the will of God, even when we don't. And pray like that he does. He intercedes for us. He goes between. He helps us in this weakness. Think about it this way. He translates our grief-stricken silence before God into sense. He translates our mumbling before the throne of God into the perfect will of God. Put almost on our lips for us, on our behalf, for our good. Christian, how many times in your life has the Spirit prayed for you like this? You have no idea. I don't know either. I don't know if it's 12 or 12,000 but it's amazing. It's forgotten. How good and perfect are his prayers for you. Just thank him, praise him right now for that ministry he has to the church and to Christians individually. Acknowledge that this is there 
And this is happening when you don't know what to pray. Don't just not pray. In fact, none of this should lead us to not pray. None of this here in verse 26 and 27 should be a license for us to not pray. Paul's not saying, you don't pray well. You don't know what to say, so shut up and let the Spirit do the talking. No, no, no. The Bible also tells us to pour our hearts out to God. But know this, that when nothing seems to be in your heart, when the well seems dry and the mind seems blank and no words seem to come out, don't think for a minute that all is lost. Don't think that the outcome of your soul, let alone any one situation, depends on you and your praying. Don't even think that your prayers depend on you because someone's praying when you don't know what to say. That's great hope. Hope for weak prayer. Secondly, there, there is hope in God's providence in verse 28. Notice in verse 26, Paul said, we don't know what to pray for. And then he begins verse 28. But we know this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's providence. God working all things together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is sometimes called the great 828. The great 828. Is it great to you? Why? Or why not? Surely this verse is sometimes wrongly understood and applied. I mean, verse 28 doesn't say that all things are good. It doesn't say that. You just read on in the rest of the chapter and you'll see some things that are not good. It doesn't say that all things will turn out for a happy ending for the Christian in this life anyway. It doesn't say that God will always do a switcheroo on bad situations. Verse 28 doesn't, doesn't mean to teach us, as the world often says, as their only kernel of hope, this too shall pass. Sometimes the cancer doesn't pass. Sometimes the marriage isn't healed. It doesn't mean to tell us that the good guys always come out on top. Now, we'll talk about what it does mean here in just a minute, but let's know what the, what the great 828 doesn't mean. It doesn't mean any of those things I just said. We should also be aware that this verse is sometimes quoted to suffering Christians quite glibly, perhaps by well-meaning Christians, perhaps not. The great 828 is not a magic pill that turns that frown upside down. 828 is not a roadblock to keep you from lament or sorrow or godly regret or even righteous indignation. 828 does not eclipse those or swallow those up. On the other hand, Beware that Christians sometimes stiff-arm this verse in their suffering. Just because 828 is not a magic pill that turns that frown upside down, and just because some Christians quote it glibly or clumsily to suffering brothers or sisters, 828 is not untrue. It is not unneeded. It is not unhelpful. 
and it should not be stiff-armed or rejected or even mocked when someone brings us this word in an hour of pain. It seems in the last couple of decades, some Christians have grown somewhat cynical about the great 828. When someone quotes it to them in their suffering, eyes roll. And even if someone quotes it to us glibly or clumsily, the truth remains. All things work together for good. Even murder, even death, even rape. Paul lists horrible things in the rest of this chapter. And they're all encompassed, encompassed within this category of all things. So what does it mean? Or another way of getting at it is if you look down at verse 28, what is the good that God has for us? Or what is he working together in our lives? And to what end is he working it? Or what is the purpose to which we have been called? And in short, this is all talking about God's eternal saving purposes for Christians. As the next two verses make clear, we'll get to those in just a bit here. What it means is that all circumstances in our lives are working towards or working together for our final and complete salvation. Everything in our lives, good, bad, and ugly, is driving towards heaven for the Christian. Nothing in our lives is on a different road than the to-heaven road. Nothing. Nothing. God is working all things. God is working all things. All things are in his control. Nothing he has for us now, however hard or upside down it seems, is outside of or going against our eternal good. That's incredible. The train of our lives is irreversibly barreling towards our eternal home, our eternal adoption, our eternal glory. Nothing can get this train off this track. It's barreling toward eternal glory with the force of an omnipotent God and with the infinite wisdom and skill of this world's only conductor. Everything in life that looks like it threatens our eternal destiny and our ultimate good and God's glory is actually propelling that train down the tracks and to those ends. I know it doesn't feel like it, this life feels slow, not like an omnipotent train barreling towards glory. It feels unsure. It feels like the tiniest pebble on a track, a little penny laid by a kid on a track could derail this train forever and ever. It feels like this life is just errands and bills and chats and sports and naps and taking care of kids. Or worse, it feels like a string of unending disappointments, fights, surgeries, 
funerals, headaches, diseases. But a guy who knew suffering more than any of us in this room, he also knew about the future glory more than any of us in this room. So listen to him. Listen to him. Back in chapter 5, he said, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He said in chapter 8, I consider the sufferings of this world to not be worthy of comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed to us. So back to 828, the great 828. Again, what is the good that he has for us? What's he working together? What's the purpose to which we've been called? Well, those kind of questions are what the next two verses answer for us. Paul takes two passes over the same ground to tell the Christian story. The Christian experience, once in verse 29 and again in verse 30. They both have to do with God's eternal plan. So thirdly, we have hope in God's eternal plan. Verse 29, let's take each verse at a time. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn, that he might be rather the firstborn among many brothers. From the beginning of time, God's foreknowledge of us and his predestination to salvation of us, all the way to the end of time, when we will be fully and finally conformed to the image of Christ, fully and finally adopted into God's family with Jesus as our big brother. That's what... Verse 29 is talking about. And by the way, that's how we can know that God's providence in every detail, every circumstance, every story, every episode, everything that goes on in this life, it's for our eternal good. We can know that because it's just one thing on a point, one thing on a line, rather, between these two points strung in eternity. Take yourself back to Algebra 2 and graph this thing, right? Over here on the left, eternity's past and God's foreknowledge of you and his predestination of you for salvation. Over here to the right, put a dot down, God's eternal future adoption and conformity to the image of Christ and with him in glory forever and ever. There's a straight line between the two. And everything in your life is on that axis, not someplace else. That's how you can know that all things are working together for your eternal good. Because there's one plan. There's one God. It's all according to plan. And that's one reason why the word foreknew here doesn't mean that God looked into the future to see whether you would choose Jesus as your Savior and then decided to choose you on that basis. That's not in the Bible, friend. The word foreknow 
can sometimes mean that God knew the future. But when it's attached to a person, that he foreknew a person, almost always in the Bible, that has nothing to do with him just knowing what they might do in their lives. Of course God knows what they'll do in their lives. But this theological category called foreknowledge, or him foreknowing, is intimate. It's personal. It's him choosing. It's him initiating. If he was looking in the future to see whether you would have chosen him on your own, he would have seen that you wouldn't have on your own. No man seeks after God. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, deep in sin and darkest night. It's only until his eye diffused a quickening ray, and that dungeon was filled with light. And then I went forth and followed thee. That word foreknow is like what David talked about in Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me, and known me from my mother's womb. Or as God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He knew. He initiated. He intended to relate to them, to relate to them intimately and savingly. And for those whom God has foreknown like that, he predestined them. He prearranged their final destiny. I know that raises questions. Some questions of which we can answer. I'd love to answer some that you might have tonight after the service. Some questions we can't answer. But one question it should answer for us is how in the world no man seeks after God, and yet we're all here tonight? How'd that happen? No man seeks after God, but we're here. Well, the answer is, is that he sought you first, friend. And Jesus said, it's not that you first loved me, it's that I first loved you, right? And so he knows. He predestines, he loves he chooses, he brings them to himself, and he will keep them. Not just keep them and keep them for heaven, but one day conform them to the image of his son. Shape them into the image of his perfect righteousness and purity. John, in 1 John, tells us that when Jesus comes, again, we'll be like him, changed into his likeness because we will see him as he is. That's verse 29. Now, verse 30, Paul backs up and retraces the same ground a second time, now with just a few more details. He still does the same thing of going into eternity past and reaching forward into eternity future in order to assure Christians of what is ahead for them by God's grace. But now he makes his case airtight with what historically has been called the golden chain of salvation. Verse 30, here's the chain. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom, those whom, those whom, the same ones, the same ones, the same ones. It doesn't say... Some he called, and even less he justified. It doesn't say most of the justified ones, 
also became the glorified ones. It's those who, those who, those who. It's a solid, unbreakable chain from eternity past to eternity future, predestined, called, or drawn, pulled in, reeled in. Those he called, he justified, he declared righteous, he grants forgiveness, he washes their sins away. And those whom he justified, he glorifies. He puts it in past tense, not because it's already happened for every Christian, because, but because it's as good as done. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Not he will, especially not he might. It's as good as done, he glorified. Just think of that day when you first came to believe. Some of us in this room can point that day, pinpoint that day when we first believed. If you can't pinpoint that day, that's all right. Don't worry about that. But think about that day if you know it. Or if you don't, think about those days leading up to it. Those days of being called and feeling like this is something, someone up there reeling you in. Well, if that was real, if you are now justified, then you will be glorified. And nothing, nothing that happens tomorrow, next week, next year threatens that. Nothing. Not the next president, whatever joker it might be. <laughs> not your angry boss, not your frustrating kids, nothing. Verse 31, you just got to love this. I mean, I, I feel like I'm ready to just explode with gospel truth and love and glory. And you can see Paul there too. What then shall we say to these things? How do you even respond to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And how has God been for us? By knowing us, by predestinating us, by justifying us, yes. But also fourthly, with a complete payment. There's hope in the complete payment of Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? Then verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now once again, we have to clarify what this great coffee mug kind of verse means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean God will give you all things. I know it says that, but it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean he will give you all things. You know how I know that? Because he hasn't. You ain't got all things. If you had all things, where would you put it? You, you can't have all things. What he means by all things is everything in the salvation package. Everything. Everything that Jesus purchased for us, the Spirit's intercession, the right and privilege to pray, the Father's love, our adoption, the surety of our salvation, our eternal home, every gift and every promise that's ever mentioned in the New Testament for Christians, he'll give you all things if Jesus died. And once again, the logic is tight. Even if 
it messes with your theology a bit, as it did with mine years ago when I really came to see what this verse was saying. Follow the logic with me. Paul is saying that if God gave Jesus to the cross for you, won't he give you the whole salvation package? Or in other words, those for whom Jesus died get the whole salvation package, not just the salvation offer. You see, either Jesus got what he paid for, or he only died to make men savable. And this verse does not say Jesus died to make them savable. It says those for whom he died, he saves completely. He saves them to the uttermost. And then Paul once again retraces his same steps with different words in verses 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than, more than that was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. Who can condemn? No one. God is the one who condemns or justifies. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus in all in him is mine. My charges? Oh, my charges were many, and they were just. But those charges were nailed to the cross. They were buried in the depths of the sea. They were removed from me as far as the east is from the west. What charges? I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them well and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. And I know that the payment that he made for me was received in full because God raised him from the dead. And now, we Christians, we're not just justified, but the Savior has gone before us to glory. He's paved the way already. He waits for us there. He waits for me there. And until he brings me to that final home, he prays for me. He prays for me. He intercedes for me. He died for me. And now he intercedes for me? Christian, you have two of the three persons of the Trinity interceding for you ongoingly. And that's just until they get you home. You have the other person of the Trinity listening to the other two about you, interceding for you. It's too much for words. And then fifth, there's hope in powerful love. Hope in powerful love in verses 35 and following. It's a permanent love. It's inseparable love. That's Paul's main point in these following verses. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Would that separate us? Distress? Would that, would that separate us? Persecution? Would that, would that separate us from his love or prove that he doesn't love us? What about famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? Would any of these things separate us from his love? Or prove that he doesn't love us? 
No. Just look at Psalm 44. Go ahead later on your own and look at Psalm 44 as a whole and why this little bit's quoted here and what the rest really says about this context in Romans 8. The bit Paul quotes is, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And yet all things work together for good. Or as he says in verse 37, no, in all these things, all these things, famine, nakedness, persecution, distress, being killed all day long. How do you get killed all day long? That's bad. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. The world looks at that and says, those are not conquerors. They're slaughtered all day long. They're sheep led to the slaughter. They're not conquerors. But in these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who loved us. God's love is powerful. It is inseparable. It is permanent. And it is personal love. It's personal. Layer it up again, Paul. Get us one more layer, one more path through the same, through the same road there. Tell us more about God's love. Well, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is great love. Amazing love. How can it be? Amazing love, indeed. Amazing love. For all those who would ever come to see their need for this kind of a Savior and call out to receive this love and forgiveness. You might have wondered earlier, am I called? Well, the evidence of his calling on your life is that you see your need for a Savior. You see him as your only hope and Savior. And you call out to have it, to love him. That's why Paul could say, that that promise in the great 828 was for those who love him. You don't need to wonder whether you love him enough. Christians who believe love him. We love him. Not all the same. We all need to love him more, but we love him. Because we believe. And we've received. And we've been changed by it. And all the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. And they are for us crazy and yet it's true we know that because there was an empty tomb we know that because he was raised from the dead because he's not here and he gave us a meal when he left for us to remember him by and by the most important thing in his life by his death a meal about his torn body and his spilled blood here we are tonight to partake of what we call the Lord's Supper or the New Covenant meal or communion. We commune with him as we partake of this meal as we remember that on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. Remember that? And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup after the supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So proclaim this to yourself 
as you partake of the Lord's Supper tonight. Proclaim your need. Proclaim to yourself his great worth and wonderful work. Proclaim to yourself that it is finished work because he is not here. It's just bread, it's just juice, but it's a picture of torn body and spilled blood. But our Savior has ascended on high. He's at the right hand of God. Right now, in this moment, perhaps, he is interceding for you. Interceding. Right now, you might think, I don't even know where to pray, how to pray, or where to begin to reconnect with God. The Spirit intercedes. The Spirit says words that you don't know to say. What great comfort there is 